0: Hello and welcome to this Cloud of Data podcast with your host, Paul Miller. I used to record these podcasts regularly, and so was somewhat surprised to discover that the last one on my site was published in March 2012. Time flies when you're doing other things, clearly. So it's time to put that right and start recording them again. Uh, I have lined up a whole series of podcasts over the next few weeks. And the first of those is the one that you're going to listen to today, which is with Mark Farley from Store Simple, now part of Microsoft. Listen on to learn a little more about Mark, Store Simple, Microsoft, and the role of storage in the cloud. I hope you enjoy it. Mark, thank you very much for joining me for this podcast today. Um, it's been a while since I've done one of these, so hopefully I won't mess up too horribly as we go along. Um, Before we get into store simple and storage in the cloud and all these other um, exciting things we're going to talk about, who are you and where are you based?
1: Oh, uh, thanks, Paul. And uh, for me, too, I've been off the Internet waves for a while, so it's my first time doing a podcast in a little bit. But it feels like putting on a comfortable glove again. Uh, I am a senior product marketing manager at Microsoft, I had been with Store Simple. Store Simple was acquired by Microsoft a little more than a year ago, and uh, so that's where I work. And I work physically in Mountain View, California. I live in Silicon Valley. I go to work at Microsoft's campus in Mountain View. Uh, And today, though, I'm working at home, and uh, it's very nice to be doing this at home, Paul.
0: Indeed, it is. Yes, I'm I'm at home as well. Now, Store Simple, um, hardware company. Microsoft software company how did that come about
1: well let's see if we if we take these things just a little bit and we say store simple cloud company Microsoft cloud company that's where the alignment
0: is that's too easy I'm not I'm not gonna let you get away with that oh
1: come on hardware
0: company software company
1: Uh, yeah, so um, so there's this other thing at Microsoft going on where they're uh, they're trying to, as they say, uh, as we say, I should say, pivot to become a uh, devices and services company. And so you know, you look at you look at the other things that are going on inside the company. For instance, Surface or Windows Phone; those are devices. You could say that Store Simple is, if you will, an enterprise device. But the play really there, Paul, is is cloud. It really has everything to do with the fact that Store Simple is a company that helps uh, customers take their on premises data and put it in the cloud. And of course, Microsoft would like that to be Windows or Windows Azure using Windows Azure storage. So that, the cloud connection really was the idea there much more than devices.
0: Okay, I, I might let you get away with that one then. Phew. Um.
1: <laughs> 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 I was to, it's it's still not noon here when we're recording I was afraid I was going to have to uh, break out the beer
0: <laughs> so store simple you said is is about helping customers presumably mostly enterprise customers move their existing storage requirements into the cloud what's special or different or notable about the way that store simple tries to set about doing that now you know, there, there are lots of companies that would say, we will quite happily help you move your data to the cloud and, and here's a bill. Um, and then, you know, perhaps just offer you up the same storage that was actually running in your own data center. What's different about what you're trying to do?
1: Oh, well, we'd like to send you a bill too.
0: <laughs> so not that different then.
1: <laughs> no, 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 wait a I'm not done. Uh the the difference in, in what the Store Simple technology does and what other cloud technologies do is that we have a an object based backend, and uh, for what it's worth, you can you know the data comes into the system, it's deduped you know using deduplication and it runs through a hash uh, algorithm, and the, the hash creates uh, the hash creates a content addressable handle for the object. And as it turns out that that object can reside in cloud storage online. that's available using cloud storage APIs. and the pointer to that object can be adjusted from being a local object to being an object in the cloud. And so that really is the, uh, that really is, in, in a sense, the, the difference between what we're, what we're doing and what most other people are doing with cloud storage is that is that our storage capacity is extended into cloud storage by using objects and pointers that can be addressed you know, using APIs in addition to those that you would use locally. Most other systems, and especially backup systems, for instance, that use the cloud, they'll take a tape image or they'll take, they'll take some other encapsulation of the data that has to be uh, transported as an entire package and they, and they put that in the cloud. Of course, then there's consumer cloud, which also is, uh, uh, you know, the BoxNet box. And, of course, you can put files in the cloud, but what we're doing is uh, is on an enterprise level on a much uh, higher capacity and, and uh, enterprise types of data management functions.
0: So presumably this process is going to speed up the initial step of moving from an on-premise data store of some sort to a cloud-based data store. What do you gain... After that initial speed, does it stay faster in terms of access, or are you using less storage because it's deduplicated or or you know what what are the advantages
1: yeah so the, the it's really has to do with uh, uh data growth mostly paul the we do uh we run data protection operations into the cloud instead of doing backup, we have what we call cloud snapshots. But the, the, the important thing to look at here is, is the type of data that gets put in the cloud. In our on-premises storage, we keep the working set on site. And in fact, we keep, we keep the most active data in SSDs, uh, less active data on hard drives. And then it's the data that's not being accessed much anymore. That's the stuff that goes to the cloud. And there's so much unstructured data piling up in on-premises data stores. You know, you look at you know how do we how do companies manage data growth? Well, for the most part, they buy more storage, and the the problems involved with uh, buying more storage, installing it, moving data stores from one storage container to another on premises it's it's uh, it's a little bit nerve wracking and it's expensive, and so what we have is a scale across architecture, where the old data that doesn't get accessed much anymore, that goes to the cloud. And so you keep, it's it's like a, um, a least recently accessed algorithm, and that stuff is what goes to the cloud, because you're always going to have latency differences between on-premises and in the cloud. And you need, your on-premises applications need much better performance than what cloud storage can provide there's no point in having active data go to the cloud because the latencies would be so great, the performance would suck and end users would complain like crazy. So, you know, you take data that's not being accessed, you put that in the cloud and, and voila, the next thing you know, you've got more capacity again on-premises for the new active data that's being created.
0: Right. So there's, there's been this idea in sort of the storage space for a while that you you tier your storage. So you have very fast Data, perhaps, data you need rapidly or data that changes a lot is stored perhaps on solid state drives. Um, data that needs to move less rapidly is on a, a spinning hard drive. And then you've got sort of tape um, down at the bottom. So you're slotting the cloud into that, that hierarchy.
1: Correct. Yeah. Where does and it come
0: I- sort of be between hard drive and tape?
1: Uh, well, the thing about cloud is that it's always, it's, it's always available and you can access it at any time and it's a big object store. And so you just need more and you, you just use it. You tell the cloud service provider, nah, I've got something else for you. And the cloud service provider worries about that. And, and they do have to worry about that, but that's, that's part of what running a cloud is. If it's you doing it with tape, uh, you have to monitor and manage tape and there's, there's, a lot to that. Um, it's, it's complicated, it's time consuming, and it's a little bit error prone.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an understatement, yes.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, anything, anything, you know, the, the, problem, with, the problem with any uh, backup process or data protection process that has a human being involved is that it's so repetitive, it's easy to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, it's just mind, a lot of this is just mind-numbing work, right? A, you, you, a robot could do it, and in many instances, robots do, but it's those kinds of repetitive administrative functions is where you find the highest incident of failures and accidents and protein robot failures is what I should say.
0: Mm. Yeah, yes, indeed. So this presumably integrates with Windows Azure, uh, which would be one of the reasons Microsoft was interested in you. Does it also work with other cloud providers, or indeed with you know sort of private and hybrid cloud type environments that, that enterprises might be deploying themselves?
1: Yes, uh, it does work with uh, it does work with other cloud providers. It works with Amazon S uh, three. I'm trying to think of uh, of who the other ones are. That's that's really the main one. We've got customers on both uh, S three as well as Azure storage, and not too much anywhere else, I guess. Um, Uh, yeah that's really that's really those are really the ones that count the most aren't they
0: they do seem to have a lot of the traction at the moment yes um be interesting to see how long that that remains true
1: yeah that could change certainly
0: yes Um, there are certainly a lot of players out there who who want a piece of amazon's action um and and there may be plenty to go around yep so I mean, one of the things we were talking about before we started the recorder was this idea that Intel have just started pushing. Um, you know, for a long time, Intel inside was was one of those selling points for either a desktop PC or indeed for a, a server in your data center. Um, and Intel have just started doing the same sort of thing in the cloud, um, which on one level makes a lot of sense. Um, but on another level sort of goes against this idea that the cloud is meant to abstract away all of these technical and, and sort of product-specific features. So you just get a VM and it just runs and you just get some storage and it's just available. Presumably sort of the, the store simple story falls into that too. You know, as a customer, as someone who just wants a VM or just wants some storage, should I ever need to care that the VM is running on an Intel chip, or the object in the object store is being served up from a store simple box?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it's, and I think it's, you know, humorous and intriguing and really uh, fascinating about trying to, you know, sort of brand Intel inside the cloud. Uh, what a, you know, maybe they found out that AMD was going to do that. <laughs> Uh or, or something else. So, you know, what's interesting about storage in, in for instance in uh with uh consumer based cloud storage like uh box, boxnet, uh, you send it, whatever, you know, you, you want to be able to use different uh devices. You know, I'd like to be able to share something with you. I don't know if you use Apple or Android or whatever. Of course I use Windows phone, Paul. <laughs> But, but I'd like to be yeah. But of course, and I'd like to be able to share you know a file with you, and I would you know I could put that in a box, for instance, and uh, you would be able to download it on whatever device that you're using, and and it, and it wouldn't matter. What's interesting though is in in what we do uh, for enterprise storage is uh, and especially the the dedupe function and the making objects and I didn't say this before we make objects out of block storage. And, and so you end up with, if you, if you think of it like a mosaic or grains of sand in the cloud, and we know what all those grains of sand are and nobody else does, right? That's the, the a necessary outcome of dedupe. You know, you, you keep a lot of metadata about the system, which objects belong where, and we also store, of course, the object maps in the cloud. But, you know, we're the only company that really knows our, our object maps. So, if you ever have a fire in your primary data center and you need to do a recovery somewhere else, you know you've got to have one of our systems there to understand the metadata to put everything back together again. Is that and, not what you call lock-in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, you you could call it lock-in. But sorry, you, you a could,
0: value-added service is what I meant to say.
1: Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't designed though for lock-in. It, uh, it was it was I think it would be. If, even if you look at this generically and say we say we had how would you do dedupe um generically the, the data comes into the system and you you hash it, you compare it to pre-existing hashes, you create an object, you create the name for it, then you and and it's a it's a block it's a it's a block volume. Um the first thing that should get back is the volume. There may be a way to do this generically. I think it would be really hard, and it would be. I think it would be hard for the storage industry to standardize on these types of dedupe block objects. Yeah. I mean, there is a, there is an industry standards organization called SNEA, uh, Storage Networking Industry Association. It's been trying to push standards, and and it's it's hard it's hard to gain agreement on you know the simplest things, much less something like this. So. It wasn't wasn't really intended to be lock in, but if somebody has a store simple um, solution, they are locked in, uh, I guess, in uh, to uh, to using our stuff uh, for recovery and that sort of thing. If somebody wanted to move that data somewhere else, they would have to do a, a transfer to another storage system, which would mean downloading everything that was in the cloud, no longer on premises, and and all that. Uh, and I suppose if they had Lots and lots and lots of stuff in the cloud that would be a painful process. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we experienced that. Uh, you know, Microsoft didn't, but the, the industry did. Um, oh gosh, my brain is just full of holes. The uh, the cloud storage company that that uh, Yes. Yeah, yes. Nirvonix, you know, pulling the plug and going out, you know, and telling people they had like two weeks or something is really hard. Yes, you know, and, and we had. It's
0: just bizarre. I mean, they must companies fail. We all run that risk, um, but they must have known more than two weeks out that they had a problem. You would have thought.
1: Yeah, and we had uh, we had a customer that had some of their data on Nirvanix. Actually, they were t- using two different uh, cloud service providers, and uh, it was crazy.
0: Yeah, um, and but that sort of stresses the importance of not putting all of your eggs in one basket, doesn't it? Um, and
1: yeah, it, it it does, and I I, I can understand the uh, I can understand why people would want to have an alternative uh, cloud service provider. Uh, the trick there is that it it, it adds cost. It, it doubles your cost of using the cloud storage service, right? If you if you mirror, if you will, to two different cloud service providers, and um, you know that's I think I think that's a worthwhile thing to consider you know inside each cloud service provider you know if you write to uh, s3 or you write to windows azure storage you know both of those services make redundant copies of the data you know so if you're writing to both clouds for instance you can end up you know with six copies of data for instance in both you know spread across two different cloud service providers and that doesn't seem all that efficient to me but that's the way it's that's the way it works
0: yes it is and and some organizations for some particular sets of data um are are pretty cautious about losing it um you know, some, yes some of this stuff you know who cares if it dies if it goes away actually you know it's not the end of the world at all you know a lot of mornings i wake up and think i wish my inbox would just implode. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> oh you and me both oh yeah
0: but, you know, other stuff perhaps matters a little more
1: uh, yeah yeah, there is there is stuff that uh, there is stuff that companies want to keep for a, for a long time, for um, compliance purposes, legal purposes, for you know engineering purposes. There's all kinds of reasons why people want to keep data for a long time, and that, and that's a that's a huge problem.
0: And do you think that those organizations could meet their sort of compliance requirements, or indeed their internal <laughs> paranoia requirements, by using just a single cloud provider? Are the the duplicate copies that that as your RS three or, or Rackspace or whoever it is might take, are they sufficient?
1: There's two answers to that. The one answer is uh, yes. legally, and the other
0: one is no.
1: <laughs> no, no. No, the one is legally and and legally yes, you're covered. The other one is practically. You know if so, some compliance has this interesting thing, and and basically it says you make the. You know, you do what is a commonly accepted best practice in the industry um, to make sure that data will be available. And, and then if a government agency wants to audit you or something comes up in a legal procedure where we want to discover that data, you can make it available for discovery and, and everybody is, is all the better. But there's always been an element of, of the potential to lose data for, for catastrophic reasons. And I'm not sure that a company like Nirvanax going out of business is a catastrophic reason or not. I mean, that would probably be tested in a court case somewhere. But for instance, warehouses full of records that had fires or floods where data was destroyed, the legal community has always had ways to deal with that. I think I think there's something called spoliation or something where data gets destroyed, you can't find it, and the discovery process doesn't work. I'm probably using the word incorrectly, Paul. but. But then there's the practical thing that says there's data that you really want to keep because you want it. And in that case, you really don't want to lose it. And um, and that might cross the line with, uh, with legal uh, stuff in some cases. You might have, say you're a, a consumer goods company and you want to make sure that you keep information available to protect yourself from consumer lawsuits. And it may have to do with manufacturing process, uh, all kinds of things like that. And, you know, if you store the data on tape, you want to be able to recover it from tape. If you store it in the cloud, you want to be able to get it back from the cloud. And um, those things are, really, and, and and you look at both of them, and, and depending on the hat that you put on that, you could say, neither one of these are very good options. Mm. Yes. Or you could say, both are great.
0: Yes, 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 indeed. Yes. And, you know, I think that leads us on quite nicely to, You know, a blog post I wrote a few weeks back and and you commented on it. And this blog post, which I'll I'll link to in the show notes, was essentially talking about some work I'm doing with the National Archives here in the UK. And they're looking at the whole role that that cloud-based storage might play there. But archives have this annoying and complicated idea that they want to keep stuff essentially forever. Um, And they want to keep it clean and pure and perfect forever. Um, and the sorts of promises that cloud providers make around you know only losing one file in a thousand or one file in a million, if you're an archive and that one file is the digital equivalent of the Declaration of Independence, you're not really going to be very happy when it's lost. Um, and so th- this community is grappling with the extent to which sort of cloud storage and you know commercial cloud storage providers can meet their needs um and you know i I posted it essentially as an open question, and your response was essentially suggesting that actually although not perfect, cloud storage might be their best hope
1: it it might be yeah the uh and and the issue there is there's there's nothing quite like paper records except they burn. And, uh, you know, and, and then trying to find things in a, in a large filing cabinet, of course, is, is nearly impossible. Um, and tape is, tape is problematic. People just think they can write on tape and it'll be easy to, to read from tape, but the devices change and the tape media changes and the formats change. And uh, if you want to read everything that's been on tape, you need to then keep probably a couple copies of the tape device around and the software that can drive the tape device and the device drivers that work with it and the operating systems that they work with. And you see where this is going. And it turns out that, that uh, tape has a lot of problems in addition to the fact that, it is, uh, that it's designed to, in its optimal conditions, to hold data for maybe up to 30 years. Uh, it's extremely uh corrosive uh reacts badly to anything other than a very narrow band of environmental conditions uh and it doesn't last the the more you use it, the worse it gets so you know you you uh read a tape and then uh rewind it uh you've decreased you've decreased the lifespan of that tape by i wouldn't say a significant percentage but a very real percentage a measurable one and if you do that enough you you will expect to lose data so so tape is, tape's tough. You know, I don't know what we're going to do about this digital dark age we've got, Paul. I mean, it's, Esther Dyson started talking about this, what, 25 years ago? Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and uh, I think she really nailed it. You know, if, if we, you know, if, if we put everything in digital uh, format, then how are, we, how are we ever going to be able to find it, you know, 50, 75, 100 years later? And this is why I think the cloud may actually be a a real saving grace for this because yeah cloud apis are likely to change and that's you know certainly they will uh, but objects objects stored in the cloud uh, if they can continue to be um, you know the cloud service provider will move them from uh, decaying equipment and media to to new equipment and media and hopefully the cloud service providers keeping not just, you know, keeping multiple copies and then using error correction technology to, to ensure against bit loss and these kinds of things, right? There's, there's been a lot of technology developed over the years for dealing with dropouts in communication. And the same kind of technology is being applied by cloud service providers for data that's stored there. So hopefully an object with an object handle uh with a known api can be something that can be recovered in 100 years time 150 years time however you know long it takes you know forever i guess at this point we're talking about forever uh and uh who knows where that goes but i think it's i think the chances of being able to access data in a well managed cloud environment are better than accessing it on tape in a well managed tape environment and and just to say this cloud services will use tape.
0: Yes, yes, they do. Um, But is is this something that your generic cloud provider can sensibly engage with? So Windows Azure, Amazon S3 or um, Amazon Glacier, indeed. Um, Because of things like the service level agreements and and the, the degree of error and the degree of mistake that most of their customers are prepared to accept so it can they do in perpetuity and not losing anything for for this sort of select bunch or is it something that a different group of of providers is going to have to step up and deal with because they're going to care more about that one in a million file loss
1: wow what a great question i think the answer to your question is is that it's economically unviable that the uh, if you will the value added archive company would in fact do a better job than a company that's doing a zillion other things and has a zillion other services there's no question about that, but I don't think anybody would pay uh, for the level of service that would that it would require to be able to archive over a long period of time i know I know several archivists, the people that I've met over the years in my career. And the the hardest problems in data storage, or, or the ones that seem most challenging to solve, always come up from the archive community. And a lot of it has to do because of the economics of it. People don't want to pay it forward to say, oh, I will pay anything to make sure I can get this because there's so much data being archived, they don't even know what's going to be valuable or relevant. and And so, uh, universities companies whatnot you know they they would like to be able to do this inexpensively and then you get whatever the uh the common denominator is of services to protect that data maybe over time we'll see we'll see i i'm not convinced for instance that amazon's glacier is is uh, really a long term value added uh, Storage facility. I mean, and I'm not just saying this as a Microsoft guy, but you know, Amazon, Amazon likes to provide services at a at a, at commodity pricing, and so I think Glacier probably follows that. And I don't know that commodity pricing anything is going to be the answer for long-term archiving. But does anybody want to pay more than that? Here's our problem this is this is you know it's a the the digital dark ages is a cultural issue an ec- a, a cultural economic issue more than it is a technology issue I think
0: yes yes I, th- I think that's probably right. Um, you know we need to decide what's important and we need to decide what we're prepared to pay for it and and we may find that despite all the whining about wanting to keep things forever we, we just can't because we're not prepared to pay for it.
1: I think that's probably right, and, Paul.
0: And face up to it and, and move on. <laughs>
1: yeah, be men. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm Sorry to all the women I just insulted. Oh, my God. But that's yeah, sort of the...
0: Which is kind of depressing.
1: Uh, yeah. You know, it, and I've got this right in my, my own neighborhood. Uh, my kids went to a high school a mile from my house. And we have an Olympic figure skater. Uh, who's going to the Olympics in Sochi, Russia this year? She's a 15-year-old kid, and she's she just came in second place in the in the, you know figure skating uh, uh, competition in the United States, and she's going to the Olympics. So it's it's an interesting school. It's got all this great stuff. One of the other uh, recent graduates is a basketball player named Aaron Gordon, and he's getting a lot of attention in the U.S. sports scene as one of the best young basketball players. Very interesting school, forward-thinking, forward-looking they recently uh, in the last 5 years or so got rid of books the kids carry iPads around and they access all of their textbooks and whatnot digitally and they also got rid of a lot of books out of the library my wife works there as a librarian <laughs> and you know it's very troublesome to her you know her job has gone from being somebody that knows how to find things in books to somebody that knows how to find things, you know, on the internet. And she helps kids do this and research and whatnot. And um, and yet at the same time, what if those repositories go away, they're unavailable, you know, that sort of thing. And you've got some of these books, I mean, let's face it, you know, who, who wants, you know, somebody can make an arbitrary decision about a poetry book online, and just say, well, that poetry book hasn't been you know, accessed in a year, and yet it may be, you know, it may be some of the most interesting stuff. Let's say, take the French poet René Char, for instance, a poet that I happen to like. I don't read French, but I know that very few people listening to this podcast probably know about René Char. But if I had to access René Char's stuff online, and then all of a sudden it couldn't because some junior level product manager somewhere said it didn't get enough views, you know, that would be galling to me.
0: Yes. Um, which was, of course, one of the big concerns, certainly here in Europe, when you know things like the Google Book digitization started you know um yes was, Europeana was a service that was set up to try and you know preserve European cultural heritage, and you know, the French at one point were trying to build an alternative to Google because they they were terrified perhaps unreasonably that this stuff would be digitized. And the more commercial stuff would continue to survive online and the the obscure French poets that were only read by three people um <laughs> w- would be left to lapse. Um, perhaps they would they would be they would be stuck on tape and they would be migrated once every thirty or forty years and so the chances of bit rot and all the things we were just talking about would increase and you know the poetry would, would disappear.
1: Yes. Yes, uh, and just because Google does it means that other people won't.
0: Hmm.
1: And well, you know, it's economically unviable, un- un- right? The, the, the barriers the barriers to entry to doing this stuff, even if it's well-meaning volunteers, are are high. And if somebody else is already sort of covering the space, then you know, is it you know is your effort worthwhile? If you're going to volunteer or you're going to put yourself into something like that you you want it to make a difference somewhere you know you you do it with that you do it with high hopes and and um of a commercial entity uh like google comes out and and does it um, you know it it certain it certainly takes the um, impetus away from participating i think i used to i used to um, edit things or or do things for uh, project gutenberg i would look at books and you know read paragraphs and try to correct the um um, the optical character recognition of the text and whatnot. And I don't do it anymore. You know, it was something that I used to do, you know, I wouldn't say regularly, but every so often I'd go in there and I'd find a textbook or I'd find a book that I thought was, you know, an interesting topic and and uh, historical volume. And, um, you know, I don't do it anymore. It's kind of, and, and that sort of, Maybe it's just because I'm lazy. Maybe because like I hopped out. But some of it was well, you know, Google is doing this, and there was, and then there the Project Gutenberg just in general became less interesting to everybody.
0: Mm. And I think certainly Microsoft were doing quite a lot of digitization at one point as well with places like the British Library, and I'm not totally sure, but I think they've stopped all that.
1: Yeah. You know, presumably
0: for similar reasons. Yeah. Google was getting all the mind share. So. Oh, I'm getting
1: depressed now, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> what have <we> got to do? <laughs> Pull me out of this.
0: <laughs> so, uh, where, where were we? The, the cloud is the best hope for archives. R- remember I, uh, that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I think it is. And, uh, you know, so we should demand more, demand better, right? For this stuff to work, you know, customers, well, customers have to pay for it, but... You know, I think, the, I think the cloud service providers, to a large degree, operate on, on um, certainly, they're, certainly their ears are tuned to the market, but they're looking at things that they can do to provide new services. And so if you, want, if you want a better archiving service, I guess the thing to do is to crow about it, make noise. Maybe that's what I need to start doing. I haven't been.
0: Is anyone going to make money out of serving the archive sector?
1: Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, yes, attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, oh, uh, you, you you call them barristers? Uh,
0: yeah, 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 or um, bloodsuckers, or...
1: <laughs> oh, no, no, I thought barrister was a nice term. <laughs> <laughs> they always make money out of everything.
0: Yes, yes, they do. But they're they're protecting our best interests, so I have to remember that. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Okay. Uh, hmm. Um yeah. Um okay, let me just check. I think we've sort of covered off that most of the things we were going to talk about. Um is there anything else you you were dying to say now you now you're back in the podcasting game?
1: No, I think I did a really lousy job talking about our own technology, but I don't care. I thought the end of the dis- I you know, I, I, I thought the discussion at the end was probably pretty good i don't know about you did, did, did it sound okay to you
0: sounded okay to me we'll have to see what the audience thinks
1: yeah yeah that's true um but you're in the producer's chair uh right or you've been in the producer's chair the last hour
0: yes um sound, sounded fine to me and okay. i'll be including your home address and your email address and <laughs> <in the shows. laughs>
1: we'll be fine A self cell number on my windows phone yes
0: so, I, I think that that probably concludes our, our podcast and I'll, I'll keep going with many more. So, Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking to you and uh, I shall, at that point, turn the recorder off and say we are done. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Paul.